This is the Monday, August 22nd, 2016 episode of The History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine takes us back to the aftermath of the First World War, where we'll visit a defeated member of the Central Powers. This increasingly bitter and paranoid nation turns inward, embraces militant nationalism, and targets minorities for persecution, scapegoating, and ultimately, wholesale slaughter, genocide. That description fits the rise of Nazi Germany, but it also describes the Ottoman Empire's state before Hitler rose to power, when their targets were not Jewish people, but the Greeks, Armenians, and other Christians of the Jewel of the Mediterranean, the city of Smyrna. Lou Urenik teaches journalism at Boston University. A former Neiman Fellow and editor of residence at Harvard University, Lou was a newspaper editor, Andy Hales from my own Rutgers University college town, New Brunswick, New Jersey. That's not the first personal connection I'll feel to today's book, so it's a challenge to do a solid history job today without getting too much of myself into the story. And what a story it is. In September 1922, Turkish nationalists wiped Smyrna off the map, literally, and they rebuilt on the ashes of the Great Fire, the city of Izmir, that we see today. Smyrna was the Mediterranean's wealthiest and most cosmopolitan city. It had been known for a long time as a home to ethnically Armenian and Greek Christians of the Ottoman Empire. As Turkish forces advanced, these Ottoman subjects who embraced Jesus found themselves driven from their homes and to the water's edge by the flames. There, just off the coast, tantalizingly, cruelly close, the warships of the great powers watched unmoved under strict orders to ignore the condemned, whose ancestors had lived in the land they called Anatolia long before the first Turkish Islamic people, centuries before. I also happen to have a family connection to the city consumed by the Great Fire. In 1890, my grandfather, James Karyanis, Dimitri Karyanis, was born and he lived in Smyrna. Papu Jimmy's wife, Mayaya, was born at Yerosuminis, not far from the city in 1904, and she carried the scars of this conflict with her until she passed away in 2009 in the town of St. Augustine, Florida. That her journey took her to that city is a nice bookend to her 104-year life. You can visit the Greek Orthodox Shrine in St. Augustine. I've been there many times myself. My aunt used to work there. It was founded by Greeks who migrated across the Atlantic from Ottoman-occupied Greece in 1768. 
about a half century before Greece won back the independence, liberty, and democracy that they first gave the world. Once in the Spanish territory of Florida, those pilgrims founded the first Orthodox colony in North America, and they christened it New Smyrna. And when that colony disbanded, the 200 or so remaining settlers moved, you guessed it, to St. Augustine, Florida. You can learn more about the great fire that destroyed the old world Smyrna by visiting smyrnafire.com, which is our guest's website, or go to facebook.com slash author, or follow at lewisurenic on Twitter. I'd also refer you to the Greek Genocide Resource Center, which you can find at greek-resource.net. Okay, now that we've set the stage and we're ready to set sail for this coastal city, let's visit Smyrna, September 1922. I'm joined on the line by Lou Yurenik, author of Smyrna, September 1922 the American mission to rescue victims of the 20th century's first genocide. Thank you for making the time to talk with the History Author Show. Dean, it's good to be with you. This is a book that I have a personal connection to, and I have a real interest in doing justice to the victims of this genocide. I hope that I would feel the same way about any victims of horrible crimes against humanity. But of course, when you're Greek, you're feeling a connection to this. And to pick up this book and read it, that felt very personal, and I was excited to talk about it. I will hear about it by the same token from Greek Americans, Greek Canadians, the vast around the world Greek diaspora. In fact, there's also a Dean Carianis down in Chile. So we're pretty widely spread out as a people. And the reason why are things like this that happened in Asia Minor a hundred years ago. As the author, I'm sure you hear a lot from Greek people, and I want to know what they have to say about your book. But Turkey, not only individual Turkish people, not a fringe element, but the government vocally denies the genocide ever happened. And they don't want this story told, not to sound dramatic, that's literally what it is. I mean, there's people that just don't want to talk about it. That's the government position. So how did you walk that line as the author? And what reaction have you gotten now on the Greek side and the Turkish side, the Armenians who were also victims to the Great Fire, now Smyrna, September 1922. The genocide is a historical fact. There's no question that it occurred. The evidence is overwhelming. There were eyewitnesses, American, British, German eyewitnesses. There's a very complete record. And so I want to just say right at the outset that there was, in fact, a genocide. And it was a Christian genocide that targeted Greeks, Armenians, and and Assyrians inside Anatolia, that large section of the Turkish peninsula, really between about 1914 and 1922. About three million people perished. These were civilians, innocent victims who were systematically slaughtered by two successive Turkish governments during that period. So there's no question that there was a genocide. You're absolutely right that the Turkish government denies the genocide. It has always denied the genocide. It has made a national project of denying the genocide, and it it spends a lot of money on propaganda and other other ways of, of making its case. The reaction, Dean, that I've gotten really has been overwhelming for me as an 
author. I took on this story really as a historian. I didn't know the story very well when I began it. I had a sense generally of what happened, but I entered the research with an open mind and I wanted to see where the research took me and there were many surprises along the way. The book has been very well received by Greek Americans, by Greeks in Greece, and, and actually Greeks all around the world. I received notes and telephone calls, likewise with many Armenian readers, Armenian Americans and Armenians from other parts of the world. People send me letters about their family stories. I've received uh, snippets of diaries, family diaries that have come my way. And so for me personally, you know, I began this as a historian, as a professional writer. And especially when I began to make presentations, you know, going from bookstores and churches and other venues to talk about the book. And I encountered audiences, people who had family connections to Smyrna. I was really moved personally by the response, the the appreciation that the story has been told. And I have since learned a lot about the way in which trauma, such as occurred at Smyrna and in Asia Minor generally, moves down through the generations, and perhaps that's something we can talk about later. I really have come to see how trauma in families shapes family identities and how certain family members become stewards of these memories. It's all really very important. So I began as a historian, and and I think the book passes muster as a piece of professional history. It's not a piece of propaganda. I'm not arguing for the Greeks or arguing for the Armenians or against the Turks. I followed the facts and the documents and the interviews where they led me, and this is the book that resulted. What was the initial inspiration for this? I see where you've gotten to now, but it's very clear that at the beginning you had no idea what you were getting yourself into or how much it would mean to people. You were just trying to write a good history. That's exactly right. You know, there was no personal connection for me in the beginning. Well, you know, interestingly, I was visiting an uncle who lived in New York some years ago, many years ago. He, somebody who I revered and who has since passed on, but he had a big collection of books. And quite coincidentally, I took a book down from his bookshelf, a book written by an Armenian woman, Marjorie Housipian. People who are familiar with with the Smyrna story will recognize that name. She was really the first person to tell the Smyrna story. I read her book and was completely fascinated by this enormous event about which I knew practically nothing. And I was especially intrigued by one character in her book, and his name was Asa Jennings, an American minister who plays a very big part in my book. In Marjorie's book, Asa Jennings makes a kind of cameo appearance. He's in and he's out. Very you know, brief appearance in the book. And my reading of the story is that he really is the hero of what happened at Smyrna. Now, her book is a good book. It centers largely on the Armenian experience at Smyrna, and she's quite candid about that in the book. So I thought, well, I'd like to find out who is this person, Asa Jennings, and how did he come to be at Smyrna, and what is it exactly that he did? And in the process of chasing his story, which led me, you know, really (laughs) many, many different places here in the U.S. and, and in other countries as well, I came to learn more generally about the decline of the Ottoman Empire, the Greek-Turkish War that began in 1919, and, and all of the diplomacy that was associated with that. And it turned into a much bigger and broader story. It went from being kind of a story conceived as a biography into a book that was really a big mural about that period in history 
centered on Anatolia and especially Smyrna. This slaughter occurs as warships of the great power are just off of the coast there. I guess if people don't know, if you look at a map today of modern day Turkey, you see sort of a curled finger reaching out there from the peninsula. In fact, you have a great description of your book. You call the islands of the Aegean a confetti spray out into the Mediterranean. I thought, wow, what a what a great writer this guy is. That's really descriptive. They are there. They're standing by. They're not getting involved. The deaths of hundreds of thousands seems inevitable. And to skip ahead, since you brought up Asa Jennings, he's one of two men, the other a U.S. naval officer who intervened to do the right thing. It occurred to me that if you ever think that one man can't make a difference, if you ever think one woman can't make a difference, if you think you can't make a difference, here's a guy who is only a low-level minister at the YMCA, happens to be on the scene when this happens, and he gets himself into the history books and he saves the lives of so many thousands of people. This is incredible. Tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, you know, it's an amazing story of an American hero. You know, I think of it as one of the great stories of an American hero that nobody knows about. You know, many thousands of people died at Smyrna, but many hundreds of thousands were rescued. And they were rescued, really, on the initiative of Asa Jennings. So here's what happened. The city of Smyrna was occupied by the Turkish army on September 9, 1922. A horrible, you can call it a holocaust, followed the occupation. People were dragged from their homes. Women were raped in the streets. Uh, you know, there was, was a wholesale slaughter of the Christian residents of Smyrna by the Turkish army, which was fully out of control. To make matters worse, two things. One, you essentially you can say all of the, the Christian residents of that part of Anatolia, you know, western Turkey, fled to Smyrna because they thought they would be safe in the city for a variety of reasons. And so soon after the Turkish army had occupied the city, there were about 300, maybe 400,000 refugees in the city of Smyrna, in addition to the half million people who, who already live there. So you know, we have this large, vulnerable Christian population at the time of this melee by the Turkish army. And then on September 13, the Turkish army set the city on fire. There's no question that the Turkish army set the city on fire. Some people would like to argue this point. I'm happy to argue it with them. There's just so much evidence that the fire was arson, deliberately set. And so the fire turned into this unbelievable raging fire that, you know, that swept across the city. And it began in the Armenian section of the city. And it quickly spread to other parts of the city. And soon it was a very big wall of fire that was moving rapidly toward the shore, driving all of these refugees and the inhabitants of these homes, Greek and Armenian people, toward the sea. Enormously hot fire, and in very short order, hundreds of thousands of people were trapped on a promenade that traces the edge of the harbor at Smyrna. Smyrna is a very beautiful harbor city, and its harbor is uh, edged by this uh, brick walkway where people in better times would, would go to restaurants and concerts and so forth, often dress up, women would carry parasols. But on the night of September 13, with the city on fire, driving everyone toward the waterfront, hundreds of thousands of people were caught on the quay, as it was called, and it looked like they were all going to die. In fact, the senior American naval officer there at the time predicted that they all would be consumed by the fire. The fire was so hot that the naval ships that you've mentioned, and I'll say more about those in a minute, had to 
bring up their anchors and fall back further into the harbor. Their canvas awnings and the hemp hawser lines and so forth were bursting into flame. That's how hot the fire was. These were poor people who had come into Smyrna from the countryside. They had brought their animals with them. These animals were on the quay. The animals began to stampede in this crowded mass of people. The crowd was so tightly packed that people were asphyxiating. They were, you know, it was like a crowded movie theater where somebody shouted fire, except that this crowd extended for over a mile and it was hundreds of thousands of people. The animals had packs on their backs and these packs burst into flame. People were committing suicide. Women were wetting blankets and covering their children with the blankets so they wouldn't be incinerated. That's the kind of scene that was unfolding on the night of September 13. The fire burned for over three days. And when it was complete, the city was fully devastated. 80, maybe 90% of Smyrna was destroyed. And it's worth remembering here that Smyrna was an extraordinary city. Before the fire, it, it may have been the richest city in the Mediterranean. It was a sophisticated city. It was a beautiful city. It was a city where people for a very long time had lived together in harmony, people of different ethnicities and religions, Greeks, Armenians, Turks, Jews, Western Europeans, and so forth. So it was terribly ironic that this genocide that had been going on for 10 years was culminated at Smyrna. But back to the story, the fire is out, and it's a hopeless situation. Ships are not coming into Smyrna. There, are, there seem to be no ships available to come into Smyrna. The conditions in the city are so bad that those few ships that were available to rescue people elected not to come into the city. They were fearful of disease. The warships that were there in the city also did not get involved for a variety of reasons. There were American ships. We had initially one destroyer, and before it was the events were over, we had as many as six destroyers at Smyrna. The British had two battleships. The French were there, the Italians. There was a really large military force, Western military force in Smyrna Harbor that elected not to get involved in the rescue of the Christians at Smyrna, at least initially in the first uh, few days of this tragedy. And the reason for that was, well, there's several reasons. First, there was a sense that the Turkish nationalists, that was the army that had occupied Smyrna, was going to prevail and would ultimately be the new leadership in Turkey. And all of these nations were jockeying to have better relations with the new government of Turkey. And it's worth remembering that the Ottoman Empire, Turkey at that point, embraced many of the oil fields that we still read about, oil fields at Mosul and so forth. So there was this sense of sort of geopolitical maneuvering on the part of the great powers. In the United States, there was a tremendous public outrage about what was happening. There was a huge amount of sympathy for the Greeks and the Armenians at Smyrna. Warren Harding was the president, and he elected not to get involved. He was a kind of isolationist. He didn't see anything good coming of it for America, and he elected not to get involved. The French and the Italians were cutting their own deals with the new Turkish government and so forth. For these reasons, the great powers decided not to get involved. Making matters worse, though, on the American side was the fact that we had as our ambassador, more or less, he was called the High Commissioner at Constantinople, a man named Mark Bristol. He didn't like Greeks, he didn't like Armenians, and he didn't like Jews, and he made no excuses for that. I'll say a few more words about him in just a minute, but back to the story. So the situation is completely hopeless, and there seems to be no 
way around what is shaping up to be the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people at Smyrna from starvation, from disease, from lack of water. Well, Asa Jennings, the hero of our story, he was stationed by the YMCA at Smyrna, and he had already engaged himself in helping refugees by seizing a number of abandoned mansions along the Smyrna waterfront, and he was using them as safe houses for women who had been raped by the Turkish army. Later in the month, some days after the fire was over, he stepped out of one of these safe houses, and to put it in his own words, he said he felt the hand of God on his shoulder, and he was moved to do something to save the Christians at Smyrna. He went to the new senior American naval officer at Smyrna, a man named Halsey Powell, and asked for assistance to get out to an Italian freighter that was in the harbor. And his idea was that he would try to get some of the women who were in his safe houses onto that Italian freighter and out of the city. Halsey Powell, who was very much his own man and is a kind of hero of this story as well, you can really say that he conspired with Jennings and assisted Jennings in the rescue. He provided Jennings with a boat out to the Italian freighter, and Jennings bribed the Italian ship captain, and he removed a 1,000 people from Smyrna. It was really a drop in the bucket, but it was a humanitarian gesture. He removed the people from these safe houses, and he brought them to the island of Lesbos, the Greek island of Lesbos, which is very close to the shore of Turkey. And when he got to Lesbos, he saw that there were many empty Greek ships. These are ships that had been used as troop transport by the Greek army. And he thought to himself, really quite unbelievable, I mean, it, it seems like a fantasy almost. You know, he thought to himself, well, if I can get possession of these ships, if I can also get these ships into Smyrna Harbor, and even sort of more fantastically, if I could get the Turkish army to allow me to load the refugees onto these ships, we can save a lot of lives. Well, it seemed an impossibility, but he conveyed his plans and his hopes to Halsey Powell back at Smyrna, and he did this with the assistance of a Greek battleship captain who was there at Smyrna in a Greek battleship, who also figures importantly into the story. His name is Theophanides, Giannis Theophanides. And engaging in some really unbelievable diplomacy, which amounted to telling some lies and making some threats and basically blackmailing the Greek government, Jennings, with the help of Theophanides, manages to come into possession of essentially all of the Greek shipping at Lesbos. At the same time, Halsey Powell is negotiating with the Turkish authorities about the status of the refugees at Smyrna. And it's worth noting at this point that the Turkish authorities had already begun marching refugees, Greeks and Armenians, out of the city, and they were killing them on the outskirts of the city. Some of them were being marched into the interior where they were put into work gangs and later killed. And this was a kind of horrible echo of what had happened to the Armenians during their part of the genocide in 1915 and 1916. So the slaughter was already underway, but Powell managed to negotiate the exit or permission to load refugees if unflagged vessels were brought into Smyrna Harbor. Now, all of this, I have to tell you, is being done without knowledge of the U.S. government. It was really a kind of conspiracy between these two men to do the right thing despite 
orders from above, orders from Mark Bristol, the admiral, the, the high commissioner, the ambassador in Constantinople who refused to rescue anybody. And it was really at some level in defiance of the U.S. State Department and the president of the United States. In fact, Bristol didn't learn about any of this until a story showed up in the New York Times some days later. And when it did, you know, he had smoke coming out of his ears and he sought an explanation. But by then it was too late and the rescue was underway. So back to the story. On September 24, Jennings returns to Smyrna, leading a long line of Greek freighters. You know, he's, there he is standing on the bridge and, and these ships are, are steaming towards Smyrna for this rescue. Powell at Smyrna sends one of his destroyers out to meet this line of Greek ships and flying the stars and stripes, leads the procession and brings all of these ships into Smyrna Harbor. He brings them to a place called the Railroad Pier very important in the story. And tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people had gathered by this point. They had seen the ships coming in and it really is quite a moment. Jennings, I quote him in the book, you know, he comes, he's on the bridge of the ship and he's approaching Smyrna and he sees the burned city ahead of him. And he sees this black line along the edge of the quay, along the promenade extending for almost a mile and a half. And then suddenly he sees that this black line is really women dressed in black, and he sees them lift their faces, the whites of their faces, and then they raise their hands, and this enormous cheer goes up from the refugees at the K. They realize that they're going to be rescued. Quite a moment. I mean, it's just so moving. He brings the ships in to the railroad pier, and the loading of refugees begins. And uh, the Turkish army had told Powell, as part of the deal that he had struck with them, that he only had seven days to remove everybody. And if he didn't get them out in seven days, they'd be marched into the interior. And of course, that was code for that they would be killed. It was an impossibility. I mean, there were just too many people. The logistics were such that it, there was no plan for loading people. And it was a very small pier. And the Turks, the Turkish army insisted on searching every individual before he or she boarded a ship. In fact, they would not let any men between the ages essentially of 16 and age 50, anybody they considered of military age, they would not let them board the ships. So the people were searched for valuables. The men were pulled out of the crowd, and this slowed everything down. The men, by the way, who were pulled out of the crowd were put into cages, and when the cages were full, they were marched into the city where they were forced to burn corpses and to clean things up, and then they were eventually marched out of the city, and many of them were killed. So Jennings and Powell begin to load all of these people onto the ships, and all through the daylight hours. They couldn't load people at night, but they loaded them all through the daylight hours, and they were shuttling ships 24 hours a day, seven days a week between Smyrna and Lesbos. And quite amazingly, I mean, it's, it's nothing really short of a miracle. They managed to get everyone who was allowed to be evacuated, they managed to get them all out of Smyrna by the deadline, you know, the very last day of September 1922. And in fact, on that last day, just a few people were loaded and Powell drove through the city looking to see if there were any stragglers and there were not. So here we have this most astonishing rescue engineered by a low-level minister of the YMCA and a career naval officer who had put his career in jeopardy at a minimum 
in order to stage its rescue. And many hundreds of thousands of people lived as a consequence. They were taken to Mytilene, to Lesbos, and then eventually to Thessaloniki and to Piraeus and resettled in Greece. That's the sense of the story that I tell in the book. I want to point out to listeners just who these people were. Hellenic listeners may notice that my last name, Karyanis, people often say to me, oh, you're from Asia Minor. They'll recognize it based on my name. And if you think about it, it probably doesn't sound like a very stereotypical Greek name. You're probably used to hearing an Apodopolis or a name like that. I point this out because the people that we are talking about here, these are their ancient homes. These are not settlers. They're not colonists. They're not invaders. In fact, I sometimes joke with Greek friends. I'll say that the favorite indoor sport of Greeks is to tell other Greeks they're not Greek enough. (laughs) A favorite indoor sport probably after wrestling, maybe soccer. But even though there's a camaraderie, Greece is very spread out. For instance, my mother's family is from Cyprus, and they have different dialect, a different way of speaking. And they would say, oh, you're Kipre, you know, you're not from Greece. It's just a little regional thing. It's a source of ribbing and giving each other a little bit of a hard time. But It's very serious for these people in the sense that many of them don't even speak Greek, even though they're ethnically Greek. My grandmother, for instance, that I've spoken about, she spoke Turkish. She wouldn't speak it uh, thus. I mean, she started speaking Greek. But, you know, you were raised. That was your country. And this is another echo of people who were Jewish in Germany before Hitler's rise. They considered themselves German. They were citizens. They lived in peace with their neighbors. And then suddenly... This new regime takes over and they want them out. They want them cleaned and want them removed. So it's not as if they just pick up and have a home to go to. Greece is a small, impoverished country. Then as now, I guess many people would say, we see it every day being overrun by refugees. So this is a rough rough time to be expelled from the only home that maybe your ancestral family has ever known and be sent to a country that you've probably never visited, right? You've never just wandered around Greece. So this is something that for me, when I was writing up the questions, one of the place names I typed in was Pontos. And in Microsoft Word and in my iPhone, they both flagged that as an unknown word. And I thought that considering the entire erasure of a culture really brought it home to me. So as a way of illustrating what this land was and who was there in these various regions, tell us briefly who were the Pontians. And by the way, for my rare self-plug here is my book, Regional Greek Cooking. We do have a whole section on Pontian cuisine. There are still Pontians today. There's many up in Canada, but it's completely forgotten and it's just blurred now, you'd say, into modern Turkey, I guess. Yeah, Dean, you're making some really excellent points. You know, the Greeks had been inhabiting Anatolia for millennia. The west coast of Turkey, you know, was so-called Ionia. Herodotus, Homer, you know, names that you know from ancient Greek history were people who, you know, Troy. That's right. They all came from this part of Turkey. The Pontic Greeks are an especially important and interesting group of Greeks in Turkey. They seem to be the Greeks who were there the longest in that part of the world. They inhabited what we call the Black Sea coast. You know, Turkey has this long northern coast that extends essentially from Georgia, you know, to Constantinople along the Black Sea. And there were many prosperous and ancient Greek cities and villages 
along the coast, and, and these are the people that we refer to as the Pontic Greeks. There were other Greeks in other parts of Anatolia, there in Cappadocia, which is an interior part of Greece. Here's a fact that surprises many people. 20% of the population of Anatolia, the Turkish peninsula, before the genocide began, 20% was Christian. So it was a very large population in that part of the world. Of course, now that population is essentially zero. There are a few Greeks in Constantinople and a, and a very few Greeks in Smyrna, but essentially the Christian population was removed from Anatolia. And you're absolutely right. These were people who, this was their homeland. This is the place that they related to. They spoke particular dialects of Greek or they spoke Turkish that were not familiar to the people in Greece. And, you know, I've talked about the rescue at Smyrna, but really the rescue after the Smyrna events were complete continued all along the Mediterranean coast and the coast of the Black Sea also led by Asa Jennings and Halsey Powell. Before all of these events were over, let's say, you know, middle of 1923, according to the patriarch at Constantinople, Jennings had rescued a million people. Wow. Now, it's, it's worth noting that the population of Greece at the time wasn't much more than four million. So what we have happening is a country absorbing what's essentially 25% of their population. So these were people who had left everything behind. Many of them had been wealthy and you know, had led sophisticated lives and so forth. Not all of them, but some of them had. But when people got to Greece, they were penniless. And so the nation of Greece was overwhelmed by what had happened. It was a catastrophe. This is how the Greeks refer to what happened at at Smyrna, as the catastrophe. And the refugees were not always well received by Greeks. There was a sense that they were not really Greek, as you say, that they were more Turkish. and, And there was a certain kind of resentment about all of that. But in any event, these uh, refugees did show up on the shores of Greece, largely at Piraeus and Salonika, and they were eventually resettled, many of them in northern Greece. I think it's fair to say now that the modern population of Greece, you know, about 25% of the people who live in Greece can trace their families back to Asia Minor. It's a very big part of the Greek consciousness. And of course, Constantinople, looms large in the Greek imagination well as a place that they identify with as kind of the center of the Greek Orthodox religion as well. And since I'm sharing a lot more about myself than usual, if people are interested, related to this is my name is Constantine. Usually if you find somebody named Dean or named Gus, it's Gostandinos. So that's my name. Sometimes you hear that they might be giant song Constantinople on the radio. And it illustrates very much for me in a pop culture mainstream way, just how forgotten this is. There's a line in there. Granted, it's a song. Granted, it's just supposed to be rhyming. But why do they change the name? Well, people just liked it better that way. It's nobody's business but the Turks. Just lyrics. But when you read your book and look at that, you say, this was really the obliteration of a culture. That's right. And it happens twice. It happens once in Constantinople as far as allies saying, well, we're not going to get involved there. And then it happens again here in your book in Smyrna, September 1922, where 
This is a defeated nation. I talked about that in the intro. They've lost the Great War. Right. They were on the side of Germany. They've lost, and the Allies have the Greeks go in there, and then they cut off their army and just leave these people there. So I think when you talk about Asa Jennings as the focus of your book, he's a legitimate hero, and it doesn't matter that he's American because you certainly are not looking to rewrite our history either. I mean, the Harding administration, people don't have much nice to say about him, but this is certainly a reaction to the Great War, the exhaustion, and then the flu pandemic after the Great War That's right. that kills so many more people than the trenches. So it's easy to condescend to people, I think, from the past. We can look back and hope we would have all been on the side of Asa Jennings, but that's not necessarily the case for people. You can see where they were just really tired and that's right. they wanted the oil, right? So we have echoes of that today. That's exactly right. And you know, people sometimes ask me, why do we not know about this event? Why is it so hidden or forgotten in history? And it's interesting, you know, there are several reasons, but I think perhaps the most crucial reason is that there was a big debate in the United States following the events at Smyrna and in Turkey. And the debate was, should the United States have a close commercial and diplomatic relationship with Turkey? And on one side, in favor of a close commercial and diplomatic relationship were the professionals at the State Department. Alan Dulles at the time was the chief of the Near East desk at the State Department. He and others argued that it was in the best interest of the United States to pursue a relationship with Turkey. On the other side were missionaries, a lot of the religious community in the United States, the Christians and Jews, who argued, no, there had been too much death, there was too much blood, there was too much horror, we should not rush into a relationship with Turkey. It was a big debate, and the way in which the State Department point of view prevailed was by denigrating what had happened to the Christians during that genocidal period. Essentially, those people on that side of the debate argued that there was no genocide, that this was a big neighborhood argument, it was a bad neighborhood, and, you know, Greeks do bad things to Turks, Turks do bad things to Armenians, and what can you do with these people anyway? That was more or less the argument made. And the consequence of that over time was to diminish the reality of what had taken place. It diminished the genocide. It erased the history of all of that. And so, in my view, that's perhaps the principal reason that this story has not come down to us in its true and vivid form, ironically. And I want to give credit to you for all your research as well, because one of the reasons that the story isn't well known is we don't have a figure, say, like Anne Frank, who writes a diary and keeps it. And right. when you take everybody's everything and when you burn all the records, my wife's a genealogist, as people also know from listening to the show and have seen through our website. We were talking there a little bit about generational feelings about it. Everybody, when Kathy talked about doing genealogy and said, you know, hey, go to the website, check out what I offer, people say, well, the Turks burned everything. There are no records to be had. And it's just that sense of loss, I think, because yes. when she really started looking, she did find things. Right. It was amazing. She also did DNA testing on us, just a little swab in your mouth. And, you know, that helps you track it down and you start to connect with some relatives there, maybe a third cousin. It gets closer and closer. They'll keep updating it for you. She managed to track down a relative of mine in London, who we're going to go meet with in October. So there is a lot out there. And I think that you don't realize maybe that you have that loss until 
you start exploring it. It's something you just automatically recall from. And I want to get into that since you brought it up about the generational trauma. And I want to do it by way of a picture in your book. In there, you have a bunch of photos in the middle. You have one that says doomed Smyrna, and it gives us sort of the view of the fire there that the view would have been from the ship. And you wonder how you could have ignored that, uh, how you could have ordered somebody to ignore it but this is what was happening and you know there's bodies in the water people begging to get on but one of the pictures that you have in there as well in smyrna september 1922 is of a priest i believe it is with a sewing machine yes little caption there it just says that a sewing machine was so valuable and a singer sewing machine from america was often the most valuable of all and my mother when she moved out she had her sewing machine And her mother said, you have to take it. And then my mother, when she moved, my father said, well, maybe we just get rid of that. My mother said, no, we have to keep it. And so I ended up taking it and it sat in my garage for whatever the six years I was at my last place. And now I brought it here to this garage. And my wife said to me, well, what are we going to do with that? We're not going to sew. I mean, it's a 80-year-old sewing machine. You've seen them. And I said, well, we can't. I just immediately recoiled. Right. It's, that's a great family story, Dean. I, you know, that's really a wonderful artifact of family history. Just wonderful. And if I hadn't read your book, I wouldn't have known why it was important. It's just, as you said, that generational trauma. Right. And some things were obvious. I mean, I went to Rutgers. You're born in New Brunswick, New Jersey. So, of course, we're the Scarlet Knights. Yes. <laughs> I show up, wearing a, show up wearing a red sweatshirt, you know, to my grandmother's house. And she says, that's the Turk color. Why are you wearing that? I say, yeah, yeah, it's my school. <laughs> Cool. And she was she was just teasing me right. and whatnot, yes. you know. But it's and I bought a truck. Yeah, yeah. How do you like my new truck? It's red. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, the memories that were pressed on to the people who survived Smyrna were beyond horrible. There were people who never were able to overcome the psychological trauma of Smyrna. Uh, some people never talked about it. Some people died once they got out. I hope that I have adequately conveyed in the book the horror of what had happened there. I mean, it was really a hell on earth for that month for the people who lived in that city. But the sewing machines, you're absolutely right. You know, we have to remember that they were fleeing ahead of the Turkish army. So they had no time to make any decisions or to pack things away. They simply grabbed what they could on their shoulders, literally walking or or leading their animals towards Smyrna. So they would take an icon, maybe a sewing machine, maybe some blankets, a little bit of food wrapped in a piece of cloth. That's the kind of escape they made in order to get to Smyrna where they thought they would be safe. And of course, ultimately they weren't. So that sewing machine picture, when I saw that, I, I looked at a lot of pictures trying to decide which ones to include in the book. And I thought that one definitely has to be there. My guest is Lou Urenic, and you saw his book first in hardcover as The Great Fire. It's now out in paperback as Smyrna, September 1922, the American mission to rescue victims of the 20th century's first genocide. You can learn more about this story of cruelty and heroism by visiting SmyrnaFire.com. And as I read that, I thought to myself, I had better spell it for listeners because it's automatic for me, but I realize people may not know how to spell it. So it's S-M-Y-R-N-A. That's SmyrnaFire.com. You can also like our guest at Facebook.com slash Lou Urenic author or follow him at Lewis Urenic on Twitter. 
and his last name is spelled U-R-E-N-E-C-K. By the way, Lou has been kind enough to dig into his own archives and provide us with a study guide for Smyrna, September 1922, which we'll post at historyauthor.com. ABC News says of the book, quote, The Great Fire reads like a fast-paced thriller, replete with vivid profiles of heroes, villains, and ordinary people caught up in ethnic and religious violence, unquote. I wanted to focus on those villains a little bit. You talked about them. You talked about Admiral Mark Lambert Bristol, who the Armenian gentleman who writes the forward, I believe, for your book says, may history blot out his name. Yes. You read the book and you see his hatred. I mean, what else do you right. call it? His total disregard and his total selling out of all of these people there. It's just a stunning thing. So to find somebody here who, I mean, save a million people. If you save one life, it's something else, right? Imagine a low-level guy at the YMCA just taking it upon himself not to look the other way. And I've heard many of your other interviews, and it's stunning to me, not only that people are so ignorant of this, but the knee-jerk reaction, not to put anyone else down who hosts, but for instance, when you said before that the fire was delivered liberally set, I noticed that you paused there and I said to myself, that's probably the pause where people usually interrupt him and people really don't want to hear this. And it's stunning because we don't try to shift the blame away from the SS or the Einsatzgruppen. If somebody was to say the Trail of Tears, deny that that was done to the Cherokee, you know, we would shun them. And that happens here. This is a forced march of the same sort of thing. These people are going to either be worked to death, the Armenians are, and the Greeks are here. The rape of Nanking, we, we don't deny these things. Not to mention the Holocaust, of course, here on a massive scale. This is 3 million people over time. That's 6 million Jews and millions of other people. But it's amazing to me that people are so afraid to call genocide by its name. And I know it's a legacy from what you were talking about there, uh, the feeling at the time and wanting to sort of ignore it. But that's 100 years ago. Why 100 years ago to now are people still so resistant? Well, I think some of this is the effectiveness of the Turkish propaganda campaign. The Turks have framed this as an argument over the facts. And again, sort of drawing on this legacy here in the United States of not fully believing what happened as a consequence of that debate in, the, in 1922, I think it's been a it's been an effective technique on the part of the Turkish government. You know, in addition, our own government has failed to recognize the genocide. And this unfortunately includes, to my great dismay, uh, President Obama. Turkey is a strategic ally of the United States. It's an important member of NATO. Its position there <clears throat> at the end of the Mediterranean and on the southwestern flank of Russia. And there has been a reluctance, to put it mildly, on the part of our government to come to terms with what really happened in Anatolia and at Smyrna in those years. Another important thing to remember is that when World War II ended, it was an unconditional surrender. And the Nazi officials who were still alive were brought to justice at Nuremberg. There were trials, and it was officially adjudicated that there had been a genocide. And some people were executed and some people were put in prison. And, and that sort of settled the matter in a way for history. 
the government that prevailed in Turkey in 1923, you know, the Turkish government, the Republic of Turkey was formed in 1923 under the leadership of Mustafa Kemal, who was president. He was the leader of the army at Smyrna. It formed the the Republic of Turkey, and that's the same government that's in power today. I mean, different people and different political parties and so forth, but there wasn't the kind of coming to terms of justice after World War One, as there was after World War Two, And so we have a situation where there's some murk, if I can use that word, kind of surrounding what happened, and the Turkish government has effectively played on that. And our own government has not been forceful in the repudiation of that false history and has found, you know, euphemisms and substitute words. And, you know, Obama has acknowledged that there was suffering and so forth. But the genocide word has not been applied and it needs to be applied because it's the truth. What's stunning to me is that it's one thing to skirt around it and one thing to ignore it and one thing to try to downplay it and, as you said, use euphemisms. But while we're in the heat of election 2016 here as we're recording this, maybe the only thing both parties agree on is it's good politics to promise to recognize the genocide as a candidate, but good policy to break that pledge when elected. And I would invite people to go Google George W. Bush, go Google Barack Obama, Google Hillary Clinton, genocide and Armenian genocide, Turkish genocide, Greek genocide, whatever term you wish to use for this. It's almost comical if it wasn't so serious that you'll get one search result dated one way going to recognize the genocide, then you'll get another that is they've been elected and they've broken that promise and failed to recognize it. The Armenians recognize every year that Barack Obama broke this promise he made to them as a candidate to recognize it on the anniversary. And to me, it's more of an insult. It's more trauma for people that suffered directly. I mean, I'm not a direct descendant of this, but imagine you're still some little yaya that's alive there that goes cast your vote for one of these candidates. And again, it's a bipartisan shame. It's an American shame. And I can see perhaps we like one candidate or another today, but there's not too many Warren G. Harding partisans out there. You know, we don't have to justify the things that he did wrong a hundred years ago, the calls that he made. Let's be honest. You know, we, we can recognize it, but I think to go about promising it seems like such a, a real slap in the face. And all the things that you said there that I, that you hear people say in interviews, well, they're a key ally. They're in NATO. Well, you know, we need them as counterbalance to the Russians. These are all things that we could say about Germany. Germany is a key ally, of course. We have no trouble not only holding them to account. I'm thinking of Dwight D. Eisenhower ordering citizens march through the concentration camps after they've been discovered as the U.S. Army liberates France and then moves farther into Germany. We have no problem doing that. And we even go farther. I mean, every time we hear a Prussian accent, we start to hear jackboots marching to a certain extent if we start to watch too many World War II movies. And I'm not advocating for generational guilt, but I want the facts to be the facts, and I would like them to stand and to show here my feelings on it, maybe in a way that people won't think I'm biased. There's a monument in Palisades Park, New Jersey, to the euphemistically called comfort women. Again, a nice euphemism for a terrible thing, forcing women into sex slavery and forcing them to follow the Japanese Imperial Army. Terrible thing. Now, Recently, the Japanese came to Palisades Park, I guess about 2014 maybe, and they said, we'd like to invest in your town. 
but maybe you could get rid of that monument. And my feeling at the time was, and I'm not a Korean, I have nobody Korean in my family, but I said, I hope they put a monument twice the size there to these women who suffered. There's there's no reason for it 75 years later to try to be erasing history. And that's something that I very much felt here. And it's going on to this day. It's happening in places that ISIS has their caliphate and Boko Haram in Africa. And I wanted to ask you how those two things are similar, how these uh, really uh, abuse and ultimately genocide against weak people, occupied people, people that just are a, a ethnic or religious minority there under Boko Haram, under the proclaimed caliphate of ISIS. How does that compare to the life of these Ottoman citizens under the Turkish caliphate? Yeah, that's a good question, Dean. I'm glad you're asking it. You know, the, the Christians in Anatolia, they were tolerated by the Ottoman government. You, know, you have to remember the Ottoman government was a caliphate. The supreme leader of the government was the sultan. And, you know, he was Muhammad's representative on earth. He was the caliph, so to speak. So Christians lived inside the Ottoman Empire, but they lived as second-class citizens. And the, the analogy that I draw in the book is it was a kind of a Jim Crow situation where rights were denied to Christians. For example, Christians had to ask permission to build a church. They were not allowed to ride a horse or to own a gun. They had to ask permission to bury their dead. They could be insulted on the street and taunted and so forth. You know, with impunity, a Christian could not bring testimony against a Muslim in an Ottoman court. So they were allowed to practice their religion, but within a very narrow band, and they were mistreated. You know, I've looked at this and I've tried to understand it. The thing that seems to be at the base, sort of at the root of all genocides, are those societies where the dominant group comes to see another group as less than human not fully human. You know, to see them not just as other, that's the beginning of it. You know, they're different than us. There's us and there's them and they're other. But when it goes so far as to think that they're not full human beings, that seems to be the road that leads to genocide. And that clearly was the case in the Ottoman Empire in these years. The Christians were referred, there are Turkish words for sheep and for cattle that were applied to the Christians. Gevaur, infidel. Gevaur Izmir was the way that the Turks referred to Smyrna. So there was this sense that the Christians, the Greeks and the Armenians and the Assyrians were not fully human. And that seems to be the beginning of the psychological process that allows one group of people to kill another group of people on a mass scale in the way in which it happened. We have to remember that this was no secret inside the Ottoman Empire. You know, people were being killed um, out in the open. They were being marched over long distances. And while it began with the elite, the elite leaders of the Ottoman Empire, they're the ones who formulated the policies and so forth, it was clear to the rest of the Turkish population what was happening. And in fact, the elite used propaganda and preyed on the fears of the masses and so forth, not unlike what we saw in Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, identifying the Jews as not fully human and then blaming the Jews for all of the problems of Germany. This is what happened in the Ottoman Empire. 
Christians, not fully human, and they are the ones responsible for the decline of our empire. And if we want to restore glory, you know, this nostalgia for the past, for some greater period in the past, we need to eliminate these people from our nation. So it's a chilling echo, Germany and the Ottoman Empire in that period, 1912 to 1922. It's the first genocide. Yes, so that's right. This is something that... Set the pattern. Yeah. So, well, the world's not going to do anything if you do it just right. One thing that I was thinking there as you were talking about the horrible things they would put people through and about doing this in the open. People love to go to our Greek bazaars, for example. There's many great restaurants serving souvlaki all over. The souvla is the name of the stick. And in your book, I read something that I don't think I'd ever... Uh, well, we would say exani, as somebody who's not Greek, uh, non-Greek. It's the word for stranger and also for guest. It's where xenophobia comes from. So you'd be, I guess, the first xani writer or xeno that would uh, mention what the suvla was used for and its sort of dark origin. So I wonder if you'd briefly mention that. Sure. The Ottoman Empire occupied what we now think of as Greece for 400 years. In fact, it occupied the entire Balkan Peninsula, all the way up to Ukraine and almost to the gates of Vienna. It was an occupation that enforced its rules and its demands through terror from time to time. And one of the ways in which the population was terrorized was by impaling people on a stick. Quite literally, a sharpened stick was driven from someone's anus right up through their innards out to the side of their neck, and it was done in a way that didn't kill them. And then they were stood up on this stick, and they slowly died. And that stick was called a souvla. And so, not exactly appetizing, but the souvlaki is uh, is skewered meat that's grilled on the streets of Athens. But it shows the Greek sense of irony, I suppose, about its history. Right. That's what you do to the lamb. Of course, the lamb is already slaughtered and dead by then, which is a mercy to the lamb. So, yeah, I think uh, people have some great dinner conversations. But this is one of the ways that the memory of the Turkish occupation of Greece was passed down through generations. It was witnessed and then these stories were retold and so forth. You know, it was not a kindly occupation. Today, the city is called Izmir. The people who live there I have no idea that it was built on the ashes of Smyrna, I guess it's fair to say. So what was it like to visit the city and say, this is what you're researching? It was completely fascinating, Dean. I found the Turkish people warm, hospitable, and interested in the story that I wanted to tell. From time to time, there was a little bit of defensiveness, but I would say it was more in the nature of skepticism. Nobody got into a big argument or threatened me or anything like that. And I think the reason for that is that they don't know their history. The Turkish government, as a matter of Turkish ideology, has fashioned and shaped a history that leaves all of this out. So there I was in modern Izmir, millions of people living there, many of them well-educated, I spoke to many of them who had been to universities, who taught at universities and so forth, and they were basically without any knowledge of what had happened. They knew there was a fire, of course, and they knew that Greeks used to live there, but beyond that, they really didn't know very much. They had a sense that the Armenians were trouble and that the Greeks had left in a population exchange, but the horror, the actual details of what had happened are unknown to the Turkish people. In a sense, their history has been blocked out 
to them by their government, which is wrong. It's an, that's another tragedy. Unfortunately, the current regime that runs Turkey, the Erdogan regime, is highly sensitive, to put it mildly. There is a euphemism <laughs> about the teaching of this history in this past. I mean, Turkey has many journalists in jail. Journalists are executed on the street. It's a dangerous place to tell the truth. And the government plays a role in denying that history and not informing its people about what happened in the past. And if we say never again, as I said to Andrew Nagorski when we talked about his book, The Nazi Hunters, we say that, so we have to really make those words mean something. There was recently a coup in Turkey, which is why we decided to sort of speed up when we talked about this. We don't know whether it was real or not. And the crackdown by the leader has extended to those few Christians that still remain there that you talked about earlier, very few of them. But he's also cited Hitler's Germany as a template for a strong government. And I just thought, can you imagine? I mean, anybody here who mentioned it, even if somebody mentions Hitler by accident or doesn't realize they're quoting him or any number of ways. I mean, I said to Mr. Nagorski, Google your favorite politician and you'll find a bunch of Nazi photoshops of them. Never mind if you Google your least favorite politician, you'll find many more. And if everybody's a Hitler, nobody's a Hitler. But when I read that, what he said, I, I can't imagine anyone in a Western government saying that and not there at least being some pulling back, some resistance. And so since I have you here, I did want to ask you, what do you see coming in the future? I know historians are sort of shy away usually from trying to predict the future, but under the headline of those who don't learn the past or condemn to repeat it, what do you see happening in that part of the world on the trajectory we're taking now? Right. Well, here's what I, I see in the present. In the present, I see Kemalism, the idea of a secular Turkey cracking and faltering. Kemal was not at all religious. Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the leader of the Turkish nation who established the Turkish Republic, he was not at all religious and he removed Islam from public life, from the public sphere. He was quite adamant about that and he saw to it that women didn't wear headscarves and, and men wore Western suits and so forth. But it turns out that Kemalism, I think to the surprise of historians, was a kind of shellac that was painted over the Turkish nation. And it was enforced largely by the army, which revered Kemal. And the army has been the repository of secularism in Turkey from the beginning of the Turkish Republic. Through all of this period, the large mass of Turkish people have been devout Muslims. And we're seeing those people come into their own, in a way, under Erdogan. And we're seeing an increasingly religious state and a religious leadership in Turkey. Now, Kemal continues to be revered in Turkey, I think largely because he was such a heroic fighter and defeated the British and the Greeks and so forth. And there are other reasons for him to be revered. But the ideas of secularism that he represented are definitely greatly diminished. And I think we're going to continue to see the rise of Islam as an important uh, part of um, Turkish governance, Turkish cultural life, Turkish public life, and so forth. Things are changing dramatically in Turkey. Well, if you want to get the 
real story. And if you want to see what's happening in that part of the world in a historical context, I can't imagine a better book to pick up than Smyrna, September 1922. Really gives you an overview. As I said, I learned many things that I did not know and don't claim to be an expert on this period. I just knew that I had this connection to it. So Lou Urenic, author of The Great Fire in hardcover. I did not catch it in hardcover, but I am very glad that I picked it up here as Smyrna, September 1922. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for giving me a connection there, bringing my grandparents alive for me again. And on behalf of all the descendants of those who suffered under the Ottoman Turk ethnic cleansing, that's the topic of your book, if I could be so forward as to speak for them, thank you for writing this book. Thank you as somebody who loves history for your efforts to get it right and best of luck. Well, thank you, Dean, for giving me an opportunity to tell a story to your listeners. Again, the book is The Great Fire in hardcover, and it's out now in paperback as Smyrna, September 1922, the American mission to rescue victims of the 20th century's first genocide. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even bookmark our URL for all your online purchases. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of everything you buy at no additional cost to you. Once again, thank you to Lou Urenic for joining us and for helping me to do some small bit of justice to my grandparents, James and Adyurov Karianis, and all those nameless, forgotten citizens of Smyrna who never got a chance to have children or grandchildren. You can visit today's guest at SmyrnaFire.com, Facebook.com slash Lou Urenic Author, or Louis Urenic on Twitter. You can also check out his first book, Backcast, which won the National Outdoor Book Award for Literary Merit, and the one simply titled Cabin, Two Brothers, A Dream, and Five Acres in Maine, a tale that won him praise as a modern answer to Henry David Thoreau, and that's some high praise there. I'd also like to point you to Greek-Genocide.net. I mentioned the study guide that Lou has for Smyrna, September 1922, and they have that right there at the Greek Genocide Resource Center. So let's send a little traffic their way. And because you have all indulged me in my personal stories today, I want to give you a little gift. And if you're Greek, what do you give as a gift but food? When my wife and I wrote Regional Greek Cooking, I included many of my grandparents' recipes, one from my Yaya Adyuro in particular. It's called Susikakia Smyrnaki, which basically translates to sausages in the style of Smyrna. These are not true sausages, but they're more like an extremely versatile and delicious meatball. They also happen to be my favorite dish to make with Yaya as a child. They're fun, they're delicious, Oh, you get to use some wine. That's nice. And they the leftover wine. Yeah, I'll give you a little taste. It's my way to remember all those who lost their lives in that ancient cosmopolitan city. I also want to remind my fellow Hellenic people around the world that there's more out there about your family ties than you may think. My wife offers genealogy services at historyauthor.com. We just love to connect people with their past. We'll link to some of the background that we found all at our historyauthor.com page this episode. Thanks to all of you for climbing not just into my time machine, but up into the branches of my family tree. I hope you'll join us next Monday for an all-new interview 
And remember, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today. Efaristopuli, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.